This podcast is produced by Clarence Valley Community Church. If you benefit from our ministry and you would like to support us, details can be found at our website, cvcc.com.au. There you can also find out more details about our church. We're starting a series in 1 Timothy. Um, I thought I was going to get from verses 1 to 10, um, and I only got to 3, so please bear with me. Um, It's 1 Timothy chapter 1, verses 1 to 3. If you have your Bible, please open it. And we're going to go through this together. It was interesting. We talked about the crucified life. We talked about how, for for many weeks, about bearing fruit and how important that is to to God, that our life has been given to serve God. Um, And now we're going to see a man, Timothy, who's actually stepping up into a leadership role, giving his life to serve God. Um, I'm really excited about that. Uh, 1 Timothy chapter 1, verses 1 to 3. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by the command of God, our Savior, and of Christ Jesus, our hope. To Timothy, my true son in the faith, Grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Lord, as I urged you when I went into Macedonia, stay there in Ephesus so that you may command certain people to not teach false doctrines any longer. What an explosive way to start a letter to young Timothy, hey? It's like, Hope in Christ, my true son in the faith, grace, mercy, peace, right. Now about those false teachers, go to war, get them, son. And uh, I just think that's an amazing, like incredible way to, to start this young man's journey into pastoral ministry. What is this false doctrine that we're speaking about? Next week, we're going to talk exactly about what these guys are teaching, but I just want to tell you, for those who might not know, this has always been Satan's way. What is false teaching? It is taking God's truth and twisting it. So it's a teaching that might have the veneer or the smell of Christianity, but really, under the surface, it is deadly. It is dangerous. You had the false prophets in the Old Testament declaring, peace, peace, God loves you. When really God's hand was, was about, it was inches away from throwing the whole nation into judgment while these false teachers who are twisting or manipulating the word of God are giving false hope, false prophecies. And these guys have come into the church. They look like godly men, but they're not. And so Timothy is sent to deal with them. This lines up actually perfectly with Acts chapter 20, verses 29 to 31, because Paul started the church in Ephesus. And what did he say just before he left? So Timothy comes along a little bit later, but this is what he said early on in the piece. I know that after I leave, this is Paul leaving Ephesus, savage wolves will come in among you and will not spare the flock. Even from your own number, men will rise up and distort the truth in order to draw away disciples after them. So be on guard. Remember that for three years, I never stopped warning each of you night 
and day with tears. And here we are a few years later, and what's Paul have to do? Leave young Timothy there to protect the church. He already prophesied that this would happen. Now, I'm going to do something a little bit different, just to understand this letter a bit more. Men of the church, could you just stand up for me for a moment? All right, someone has come into the church... And they are, they've come up and they're twisting the word of God. They're speaking falsely of Jesus. Now, just imagine as you're standing there, you're about to raise your voice. You're about to call out in front of everybody, point your finger and say, enough, stop. That's what Paul is asking Timothy to do. You know, some of you standing may be like, I don't know if, I'm, if I could do that. But that's the request being asked to a very, very young man. Now, what's at stake, we're going to get a bit further into this, but what's at stake is 1 Timothy 4.16, which says that if you stand up, if you call out false teaching, it will not only save yourself, if you watch your life and doctrine, it will not only save yourself, but it will save your hearers as well. Because what did Paul say in Acts 20? That these men will look to deceive and take away disciples to themselves, meaning those disciples aren't under the teaching of the word of God, but they're under the teaching now of these false teachers. These ravenous or savage wolves, ladies, would you please take a stand for me at this moment? What qualification, ladies, do you need to call out a false teacher? You need the beating heart of a Christian. You need to be one who loves the truth and loves God more than you love the person standing up the front. Now imagine yourself standing there and you're about to call out to the front and you're about to say, enough, you twist the word of my God and I will not hear any more of it, not just for my sake, but for the sake of my sisters as well. Thank you. Please be seated. Could you picture yourself doing that? Sadly, Unlike so many today, Paul and Timothy didn't turn up to church on Sunday just to play games. Like, this is business. This is war for them. Their faith and fellowship with you, the saints, was not a trifling matter, not a nuisance that gets in the way. You know, Sunday wasn't a, all right, I'll go to three hours at church and then get home again. No, this was men refining men, women refining women, people being grown up in the faith and protecting one another for the truth that is in God's word. This is important stuff. For the sake of love, they stood ready to shield the brothers and sisters while waging war against all who opposed God's truth and Christ's rule. And some of you may think, maybe I'm not there yet. Maybe I'm not seeing church the same way that Paul certainly saw church. Timothy certainly saw church. Jesus calls the church his bride. I wonder how seriously he takes it. If you've ever had a wife, I I have no doubt you take her quite seriously. How do we wage war? Well, we know the sword of the spirit, which is what? The word of God. We wage war in the spirit speaking God's truth against their lies. 
You know, you, you come to some theological books and honestly, my brain falls out my ear. Like some of these books are this thick. Theological books just l talking about the Bible. And the reason I've got to have my head around some of that is because of all the rubbish that's out there. There are so many false teachings. There's so many little nuances where people just twist and contort the word of God that you've sort of got to have your head around the truth real well so that you know when you're smelling a lie. And for us, we need to be on guard against these things. Now, if Paul sent you a letter like this, are you ready to walk into a church and command certain people not to teach false doctrine any longer, to boldly protect and proclaim God's word? Now, I might, I understand this. If you're very new to the faith, you may be like, Dan, that's huge. Like, I don't know if I could do that because I might not have the working knowledge to know whether what I'm hearing is totally accurate or not. I, I get that. Like, we've all got to grow up into the faith. We've all got to, like, come to the Word of God and understand it piece by piece. It doesn't happen overnight. Um, that's understandable. But as we consider Timothy's role in the church, let's, let's ensure that we haven't sidelined or stifled ourselves in idleness. What do I mean? Well, I'm not talking about people who are just five minutes in the faith. I'm talking about you who have been in the faith for some years now. The type where Paul would say, you know, you should have been teachers by now. And, and I just want to speak into this. Are you stifling or sidelining your walk? I'm not talking about you being in Christ, that's a given, but I'm talking about your progression in the faith, your effectiveness in the faith, and that's happening because of idleness. And I'll give some examples of, of what I mean by idleness, because I guess the flip to this would be Timothy gets the letter, he reads it, and he goes, I'm not ready for this. It's like, Timothy, I've taught you for six years, eight years, and you, you're not ready for this? Like, Timothy, like, didn't we go through this when I was there? Now you've sent the letter, just go and do it. I'm, I'm not, I can't do that. So this is all above me. To the question of being ready to stand for truth, I just want to touch on Revelation 13. Like This is the seriousness of, of what I'm saying here. Revelation 13, I'm, I'm going to paraphrase it. We're starting around verse 3 there. But it's, it's got this depiction of a dragon. So this is right near the end of days. Revelation 13. Um, and we've got this picture of a dragon who's looking out over the ocean. You could just see this demonic creature that is just laser eyes down onto this water on this ocean. And then out of the ocean bursts forth a beast of all things. Now, the beast comes forth out of the ocean and utters proud words and blasphemies against God, slandering his great name and his dwelling place and those who live in heaven. Now, here's the interesting part about Revelation 13. It will be given power, this beast will be given power to wage war against God's holy people and conquer us. You can go and check for yourself. This beast will be given power to war against and conquer us. It was also given authority over every tribe, people, language, and nation. All who inhabit the earth will worship the beast, all those whose names are not written in the Lamb's book of life. Now who's ready to defend their faith? 
How will we be conquered? And what will separate those whose names are in the Lamb's Book of Life and those who are not? That's the question that we need to ask out of Revelation 13 because I definitely don't want to be found worshipping no beast. How are we going to be conquered? Well, he's going to open his mouth to blaspheme God and to slander his name and his dwelling place and those who live in heaven and they're going to come bashing on your door and they're going to say, join us, slandering God blaspheming his name and what are you going to say no we're going to be pretty easy to conquer we're going to be found out quite simply if every tribe every it says here every tribe people language nation are all going to be under the influence and power of this thing and there's going to be this group that says i'm telling you i say no i stand with god that's how we're going to be conquered you'll be found out quite easily But now the next question is, well, what's going to separate those whose names are written in the Lamb's Book of Life who will overcome and those who are not? The point of separation, the saved and the eternally lost, will be those who stand for Christ and those who profess Christ and those who won't. It says in Revelation chapter 12, verse 11, quite simply, any of this time comes up to you in 13, read this. Those who triumphed over him by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of their testimony, they triumphed because the blood of Christ has forgiven them of all of their sin. Not only that, they didn't have the faith of demons where they know that God is one, but they also have the truth of the testimony of the gospel living within them. They didn't have a head knowledge. They had a working knowledge of the gospel. They believed the gospel and then they This is the last stipulation. They did not love their lives so much as to shrink from death. Now, I bet you Timothy had no idea what audience he was going to get when he started calling out these people. And you've got to remember that false teachers, the very definition, false teachers, are not playing by the rules of Christians, are they? They'll twist the word of God to suit them at any any juncture. It's very sad. Now, I hope if you see a a minister or or someone who's preaching the truth, if they're corrected or if they're disciplined, they'll have the humility of God to admit it and even step down if necessary. That's fine. You think a false teacher who's got his pride and his ego behind that ministry is going to let things go like that? Timothy had no idea what violence he might be copying, no idea what slander might be leveled at him when he goes to challenge these people. But do you think he would shrink back from death or obey God through Paul's letter? Alternatively, the other, the flip side to that, we see Jesus' words in John chapter 12, 25. Those who love their lives will what? Lose it. But those who lose their lives for my sake, well, we find it, we have it for eternal, for eternity. See, this is the crossroad as a Christian that we need to come to. Now, I just want to remind you, you think we're closer to Revelation 13 now than back when Paul wrote the letter, 1 Timothy? We're much closer now. I think, if anything, we should be more enthusiastic than Timothy, ready to, ready to say, no, I'm, I'm following Christ the whole way. If it costs me my very life, so be it. Let it go to the wind. Because 
they did not love their lives so much as to shrink from death. You see, that's those people who have got their eyes set on the kingdom. They're ready to follow Christ the whole way. Now, this may sober you also if you find very few standing next to you. Now, the type of persecution I'm talking about, there may be very, very few standing next to you. Germany, at the, at the height of, of the Nazi regime, apparently almost 100% Christian, the population. I'll, I'll just put the air quotes up there, Christian. You had 20 million uh, Roman Catholics and 40 million Protestants. So I get, and I've, I've seen this, you get the picture of these SS soldiers who at night are reading their Bibles and in the daytime taking innocent life. And to someone like that, you look like a fool when you stand your ground and you say, oh, no way. No way I do not compromise because I fear God more than I fear this regime. That's what's at stake. You may have very few standing up. Timothy may have got laughed out of the building, stoned outside its walls. Yet still, we know that he went into that job and he did what he was supposed to do. And the reason I know that is because we've got a letter called 2 Timothy. So he survived the first day. Praise God for that. Richard Wombrandt is another man um, over in Romania. This was the time of the communists running through Romania, running through pretty much all of Europe. And the communists were very smart. They were trying to merge communism with the church and they're trying to sell it to the majority so that we would swallow it hook, line and sinker. This is just general communism. And then they'd have a peaceful mass until they get enough numbers to just kick us out anyway and stop us worshipping and, and loving one another. Anyway... Richard goes to a conference full of ministers, hundreds, possibly a over a thousand ministers. How many stand up to say that communism is incompatible with Christianity? I believe it was just him. And for that, he was watched and he was sent to prison and tortured for 10 years. A most, a, quite a, a number of that time was in solitary confinement. He nearly went mad as well. Well, hang on, what are all these other men of God doing? They sat there complicit. You know, a country with a population of, of uh, a Christian population so big, and yet so many give over to the lie, so many compromise, and Jesus is looking us in the eye and saying, but not you, my daughter, not you, my son, you stand firm. Don't you shrink back like the rest because I love you and I know you love me. It's tough. To think the deception in the early church, the evil of the Nazi regime and, and the communist movement that saw the lives of tens of millions taken, that seems a shadow what I've just described is a shadow of the main event that I'm seeing in Revelation 13. Like Jesus says that when the Son of Man returns, will he find faith on the earth? Two things can come from that statement. One is there's a great apostasy, which means many are going to walk out on Jesus. And that is prophesied that will happen toward the end. Many will walk out on Jesus. But another thing that's maybe a bit more chilling to me, and you may have a different view of um, eschatology of Revelation, but this is mine, 
if he didn't cut the days short, there'd be none of us left. Meaning he's asking, is there going to be faith found on the earth because the persecution is going to be so great that there will barely be any of you left? Everybody on this side is compromised and these are the ones that they haven't found yet. And then he will return. As you can guess, during the height of these movements uh, from the early church to now, uh, countless numbers of self-professing Christians chose to compromise their faith in this life to sadly forfeit their life in the age to come. They floated around as if in a dream, concerned with many worldly pursuits, till suddenly the cost of following Jesus hits them square between the eyes. It's going to cost you everything. Who overcomes? They who did not love their lives so much as to shrink from death. I don't know much about card games, but I heard this one where you push all the chips and you say, all in, all in. You know, that's exactly what Christ is asking us to when we follow him. Are we all in? That's a big question. I know, I know in those games, like you literally, you may be losing lots of money, you know, but, but imagine you pushing your life into the life of Jesus and you're pushing it right up in there and you're saying, Jesus, I am all in you and nothing else. Well, that's a powerful relationship that we're called to. And, and I love this about Jesus. You know, does he leave you there dangling alone? Is it like all in and it's just cold and hollow? Or is it the, the deeper we push into Jesus, the greater he's going to come into us. The greater he's going to make himself known when he needs to be known. You know, there are people who have trusted, like Richard who went to prison for over 10 years, there are people who have tried and tested the faithfulness of God in circumstances that I couldn't even utter here because we, we, we'd be sick. And as they pressed their life into Jesus and said, you and nothing else, Jesus rose to the occasion and got them through that time. The problem we have is when people just throw their hands up and say, I'm not, I didn't count the cost. I'm not ready to lose my life. I love my life in this age and forfeit my life in the age to come. And I believe we ask a lot of God if we prance around as if in a dream, we play church, we play Christian, we play holy, and we ask a lot of God that when times of persecution, times of testing come, that suddenly, God, all right, now I need you. I'm ready. Come on, fix this. Help me right now. What would have been better? Every day, Lord, you are enough. Lord, I'm all in. And then a problem comes. God, I've trusted you through worse. I'm going to trust you through this. That's the relationship that God calls us to, to die daily. And yet I think we ask a lot of God if we're going to play games now. And then when persecution comes, oh, God, I need you. Maybe for five minutes you need God and then you'll run. That may be the sad reality of many in the Nazi regime, many in Romania during the communist regime. Now I reflect upon Paul and Timothy, and these were men that were training for war. You imagine like men in the trenches versus the man sleeping on the lazy boy at home. 
You know, which one's going to be ready when a hard time comes? The guy that's already got his knees and his face dirty. You know, the guy that's been, that's been focused upon the Lord and focused on serving the Lord, not the one who's been playing games. Um, Timothy, if we think about it for a moment, has gone through basic training. You see, I'm not trying to call you to something that may be above you or out of your reach. Like, don't hear me saying today, well, if you're not ready to die, then don't even bother. What I'm saying is this, and we look at it from Timothy's point of view. It wasn't as though Paul just got a letter and gave it to Timothy and said, fix that church and risk your life doing it. No, Timothy was with Paul for many years. Some of you here have been with Christ for many years. He went through all of Paul's hardships, his starvation, his nakedness, his shipwrecks, his being attacked by wild animals, his beatings, his stonings, his whippings. Timothy was there for a lot of that. Timothy's mentioned in every letter of Paul's bar three. This kid really was like a son to Paul. But you see, we here have to be people that are not on the lazy boy, but we are working towards something in our faith. God's given you something to do, some way to contribute, some way to serve. And many of us are just not even there yet. Years in the faith. And if I may remind us of the stakes again, why you should serve, why this is so important, you will not just save yourself, but you'll save your hearers also. You see, we may not, might not be suffering major persecution at the moment, but when you serve the Lord Jesus, you are helping to support spreading the message of hope out to the people there. And for them, it is salvation or eternal hopelessness. The reality is each person facing God's judgment would rather endure all of history's woes. Like every evil that has ever occurred in this world, an individual who has a choice between facing all of those woes with Christ or God's judgment on that day would say, put me through the history of, of depravity in this world with Christ rather than put me before the hands of the living God. That's what's at stake for these people out there. This is why we best not be idle, but be busy together as one people using our gifts to serve one another and to serve the Lord Jesus. For idleness has destroyed God's people all too often. I just thought of two examples for today. The first one comes from 2 Samuel chapter 11, verse 1. This is about that time where David is about to steal a man's wife, have a baby with her, and have the man killed who, who was married to this, this woman, Bathsheba. It says this, this is just before that happened. It says 2 Samuel chapter 11, verse 1, in the spring at the time when kings go off to war. Did you hear that? It's spring, kings go to war. And what does it say of David? David sent Joab out with the king's men and the whole Israelite army. Do we catch what God, what God, the point God's making there? Kings are meant to go out and go to war and lead their people into battle, just as Jesus leads us 
through the valley of the shadow of death. He gets us through the judgment of God and out of the hands of Satan, right? David was meant to lead his people in in a similar way, in a physical battle. But instead, he stayed home. Now, we may argue, no, hang on, David may have still been running his country, collecting taxes, managing officials, but he wasn't where God wanted him to be. He wasn't supposed to be there. He was supposed to be out warring. That's what God's saying. And what does his idleness cost him? Now, remember, it's not idleness as though he's just sitting down doing nothing. He would have been busy being a king, but because he was doing the wrong thing, it ended up leading to tragic tragic sin it cost the people of God because of this one man's sin another example which is I guess on a more grand scale Moses ascends Mount Sinai to get the Ten Commandments 40 days pass and what do the people say after the people saw that Moses had been on the mountain for a long time Let's throw some gold into the cast and let's make ourselves a God of our own. And they begin to bow down and worship this filthy, disgusting, godless, golden calf. What was the excuse? Moses has been gone too long. Instead of serving the Lord, found diligent at their work, they became idle. And again, the jobs, they were still breathing, they were still living, they were still doing things, but they weren't focused on the work of the Lord, but on their own, on their own fancies. Seldom does a saint, busy in the Lord's work, suddenly leave the faith. Like you're busy serving God, loving God, loving his people. You don't wake up one morning and go, I don't believe in Jesus anymore. Like it doesn't happen. I've never seen that before. Or they don't suddenly backslide into deep and habitual sin like Israel did, like David did. It, just, it doesn't normally happen when we're about the Lord's business instead of idleness. But more often than not, a tragedy arises when a decision is made to progressively put God second, then third, eventually fourth, and so on and on until there's none of the crucified life left. That's how a person loses their faith. They get lazy, they become idle, they put other things before God's things. And before you know it, and I meet them on the streets and you knock on their door and they say, I went to church for 20 years and I've stopped going now. And you say to them, square, you say to them, square, how do you know you're going to heaven? Oh, because I'm a good person. How tragic is that? 20 years wasted. Satan has had such a deep and effective work in their heart that they don't even remember the death of Jesus for their sin. There's no grace left in them. And I promise you this, we're not much pressure when we come to your door, but when they stand before the living God and he declares, why should I let you in? I have no doubt. They'll say exactly the same words, because I'm a good person. That's really sad. I'm not proud of that. I think that's really, really sad. But you know what? 
all of that began because at some point, one day, they woke up and they put God second in a decision. Soon enough, third, fourth, on and on until the crucified life is completely gone. For them, Paul's fears become a reality. But I am afraid that just as Eve was deceived by the serpent's cunning, your minds may somehow be led astray from the sincere and pure devotion to Christ. That was his fear. You've been deceived and now you, don't, you no longer have a sincere and pure devotion to Christ. Yet not so for young Timothy. And I pray not so for you either. In times of severe persecution, the enemy will take away, here we go, I'm just, this is just a few, they'll take away a lot more than these, Bibles, church attendance, devotion times, morning and evening, fellowship with one another, and genuine love amongst the saints. Those will be taken from us. Yet I fear that there will be some who won't bat an eyelid because those things weren't that important to them anyway. And yet others will say, I cannot live without these things. Because I'm all in. I live for what Christ loves, not what I love. God is not some small segment of a greater whole that's in my life. God is my life. And every decision I make flows from my relationship with him. Whatever I buy, whatever I do, when I get up in the morning, the decision I make, it all flows from our relationship with God. Yet how does 1 Timothy chapter 1, verses 1 to 3, equip us to be ready for those days to come? I imagine there, uh, I imagine there may um, have been both sadness and joy for Paul as he wrote this letter, because as I said, Timothy journeyed with Paul. It would be like you, a parent, and you're standing at the driveway waving your 20-year-old son or daughter down the road because they've matured and they're off on their own, and I'd be pretty excited about that. Training, Basic training's finished. I've done my best. You're out on your own. Praise God. That's an achievement. But then there's a sadness because he's not there with, with Paul anymore. A similar... Um, would be the heavy weight in the words in verse 2. He's my true son in the faith. And as I said, Timothy's mentioned in just about every book that Paul writes as they were traveling together. And now the Lord brought Timothy to a point in his life where he's, he is entrusted to safeguard and manage the church in Ephesus. I wonder how the Spirit must have moved in Timothy as he was being developed in the faith, growing into this role as leader of the church in Ephesus. But I also wonder if the Spirit of God is moving upon us here to serve Jesus, to do something else with our lives. Maybe there's been idleness, there's been lots happening, but it hasn't been the thing that God's called me to. There's been lots of events, lots of circumstances, lots of areas where I felt I was needed, but the Spirit of God has put a yearning in my heart and I need to serve Jesus in a particular way. And I pray that if that's you, that you would begin to take that road, take that charge. Oh, how Paul must have rejoiced when godly training had its full development and Timothy steps into the church in Ephesus. 
And that is really the answer to our question today. Are we doing the things that God wants us to do or is there an idleness about our lives? Those vigorous at the Lord's work will say on the day of testing, Lord, I have given you so much of my life. I live and breathe for you. I have served you and not myself. I bear witness to your capacity to sustain me, Lord. And now and again, I entrust my whole self to you. There's going to be people like that in this room. They're there. They get it. They're on the path. They're serving God in the way that God has asked them to serve him. Praise the Lord. How free is that individual from any regime, any government or group that looks to take our faith or practice away? You can't touch that person. They love Jesus too much. The love for Jesus eclipses their own care for their own life. There's nothing the world can do. Jesus said, don't fear man who can destroy the body and then do nothing else. That's that person. All this leaves us is with an interesting question. How are we working and serving Jesus now? Now remember, I don't want you to get ahead of yourself. Timothy had to walk the road with Paul. He had to do the hard yards. Maybe for you it's a time of education, upskilling, um, surrendering, asking. Maybe can I serve? Can I help? Can I do something? You know, get, getting alongside someone who has a gift that you would want to display or have for yourself. You feel the Spirit's calling to you and say, I want to develop this. How can I do that? Because like, I promise you this. And this is what some people tell me, and I, I, I do laugh at times. They say, but I don't know what to do. What, what is to do? There's nothing to do. It's like the problem is not that there's nothing to do. This is a global mission, and you are called to be a part of that mission. It is the, the problem we actually have is that there's too much to do and not enough people to do it. Why would Jesus ask us to say, pray to the Lord of har the harvest that he would send workers? It's because there's too much. There's, there's, there's too much. You could, you could fill 24 hours a day of your own life and it wouldn't be enough. But whatever you do give is praiseworthy and will be remembered by God. But this is the challenge. Maybe the last, maybe just as I get ready to close. This is the challenge. You can only give Christ what you're willing to give up in the world. Does that make sense? You're only able to give Christ what you're willing to give up. Because your life is busy. Everybody's got their excuses. But at the end of the day, if you've not made room for Christ, it's because you've filled, you've filled your life with other things. Some of them God wants you to do. Some of them maybe not. But it's up to us to make the stand, make a decision. How much of this is fruitful for God or how much of it do I need to cut away to give back to Christ? Consecrated, continual and sustained effort ripens a Christian to maturity. We are the answer to this evil world. We sometimes just don't feel like it. Be on the road with Paul. Serve our beloved Lord Jesus who first gave his very life to serve you that you may give your life up to him so that when the time comes, you will be equipped, ready to defend the church that you help build. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, 
Lord, I thank you so much that you've not left us as orphans, you've given us of your Holy Spirit, but you've also not left us with an excuse of idleness because there is so much, Lord, that you have called us into. So many areas in this world that need healing and need your love, your presence and your touch. And God, you have made us your hands and feet that as one body and one church in one faith, we would serve you and demonstrate you to this broken and lost world. Not only that, but we have it within us to free people from the bondage of Satan, from the bondage of their sin, and to present them, Lord, into your holy presence because we have the gospel. And the gospel is the power of God unto the salvation of all who believe, no matter what race they come from, no matter what tribe they belong to, no matter who they are and where they've been. And so, God, I pray that you would stir your people and that, Lord, we would serve you with a whole heart, recalibrate ourselves for this new year, that, Lord, next year we will come in swinging. In Jesus' name, amen.